Welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Angel Deer is a medicine man and offers his work on sacred land through shamanic healing, energy healing, sound healing, breath work, plant medicine, and workshops and events. The Sanctuary is a community for all those who seek healing transformation, ancient wisdom, and a place to come together to create a new way of living and relating. This is the Sanctuary Podcast, and this is Angel Deer. Hi, everyone. Uh, Real pleasure to uh, be back here uh, on our YouTube channel, on our podcast, and... uh, I've got such an exciting guest today, uh, Charles Langley, and I'm going to introduce you to Charles. And I wanted to say that I met Charles very recently, uh, only a few weeks ago in person, because Charles came on the land here at the sanctuary with Chiramon, one of the last Navarro medicine men. And I got to experience for a long weekend with a group of people the way uh, traditional healing uh, is done by, by Chi and in general by this, in this tradition. And I was so amazed by it. We had a group of 15 people that I wanted to bring back Charles here on the podcast, on this recording, to uh, share with you uh, the immense wisdom that Charles Carey and uh, yeah, probably get you interested to learn more about this tradition and hopefully uh, get you really intrigued by uh, those ancient methods of healing. So Charles, good evening. How are you? Good evening, Angel. Uh, very well, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Yes. Yes, me too. It's it's really good. I, like I was saying, I got such a beautiful time with you and your wife and she and his daughter and really happy we could connect again. So for those of you that don't know Charles, uh, in fact, I'm going to let him introduce himself, but Charles has been a student of uh, Chi Ramon for almost 20 years, Charles, right? That's You've good. been working well, with Chi. It's Qi. nearly 20 years. Yes, yeah. It's been 20 years this year. Nearly 20 years. Yes. So... So Charles is not an Navarro man, he's an Englishman uh, that came to this country uh, a little bit over 20 years ago, but somehow ended up staying uh, with Chi and spent a lot of time with him. And so Charles, tell us a little bit first about your story. How did you end up um, coming from England here and how did you end up on reservation with the Navarro people and with Chi? Well, it's such a weird story. I actually wrote a book about it. So, to, to sort of... And we'll talk about yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, essentially what happened was uh, I was a journalist uh, in London for many years. Uh, I worked for Sunday, people at the Sunday Times, BBC. I edited encyclopedias. Uh, I was, my last job was being night news editor of the London Evening Standard. Uh, which at the time was the largest evening newspaper in Western Europe and quite, quite a long way. Um, eventually, I reached that stage in life, which I think people do. <laughs> you think, look, hopefully, I guess. I don't know what you're going to say, but I guess hopefully. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, a lot of people reach it and then can't can't do anything about it. But I mean, I just reached that stage in life where I thought, you know, if I stay here any longer, I'm just going to become part of the furniture, you know. And I said, I remember this very distinctly. I said to a colleague, you know, look, I'm leaving, right? I'm, I'm going, and, and you know, and they said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm not slightest idea. And this guy threw up his hands in horror, and he said, but, but you've got a job for life. And without mm. thinking about it, I just heard myself saying, but I want the life. You know, and that was one of those moments when I realized that whatever it was I was doing, and I had no idea, to be honest, I was going to be doing the right thing. Uh, so I set off to... So you basically drive. had not yet... You were not yet arrived on the reservation. You haven't met the Navarro. You just say, okay, I'm gone. I'm yeah. not doing that anymore. And here you are in the US, right, at some point in That's that story. Right. I mean, so shortly after that, I, I quit. And uh, I set off to drive across the United States, which is one of the weird things I'd always wanted to do. So uh, I flew to Florida, bought a car, and... Ended up in Louisiana, in the swamps in Louisiana, where there was this wonderful French lady called Mary Lynn Schoff, who introduced me to these people that the French call tracteurs. Right now, that's a Cajun mm -hmm. French word. You know, I know I'm talking to a Frenchman, but, or at least a Caucasian. Uh, so, uh, at least, uh, yeah, um, uh, a man from, uh, a man who speaks French. <laughs> The, um, it's, a, it's a Cajun uh, word, uh, and it's a very ancient one, and these are healers from France who died out in France, as far as I know, but they still survived in the swamps, or they did at that time. And their roots go mm -hmm. back to pre-Roman Gaul, actually, I mean, when I, I looked into this. Uh, and by that time, um, they were down to the very last few. Uh, and I was very fortunate to meet these gentlemen. They were about 88, five years old. Uh, they had no successors. They knew their day was done. And they said to me, look, uh, we're going to give you our prayers and our power and maybe you can do, you know, maybe it'd be some help to some of the people of England. And I said, well, look, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how to do this. I mean, look, you know, I've only be with you one afternoon and he just said well you can either do it or you can't that's as simple as that so so i did this and then the most bizarre thing happened i went back to mary lynn's place and uh it's one of those places b and b there was never any b I, I, as in breakfast so i was searching through a cupboard all morning desperate for something to eat and the stuff just avalanche lands on me. And, and, you know, the floor was covered in all the stuff. That's the way I could describe it as stuff. And then I said, oh, that's presents for the Navajos, right? Remember, I'm in the Atchafalaya Swamp in Louisiana, right? Mm -hmm. a, so quite far from the Navajo Reservation, that territory. It's a hundred miles, I think. I mean, and how many Navajos mm -hmm. have never been to the Atchafalaya Swamp? Uh, but anyway, what, what had happened, there was a film out then called The Wind Talkers, which was about Navajos who used their language 
uh, in the Second World War as a code against the Japanese. And it was never broken because the Japanese didn't speak any Navajo. Um, uh, and anyway, this film had come out, and these Navajos had been... What happened was that the, there was a, a very important special services man, um, American Special Forces, and who lived in that area, actually, and, and thought it was... Uh, he retired down there. He, he thought it was a good idea to bring real Navajo code talkers to their Mardi Gras festival that year. Local people had collected these presents for them, but they left before they were delivered. Well, I was heading up to San Francisco, and I wanted to pick up Route 66, one look at the map showed me that Route 66, which is now the I-40, goes right past the Navajo Reservation. So I said, I'll take you. But that is, that's the short version, Angel. Uh, yes, and so, yes, so there you're right. So we can say, you know, set of circumstance, right? Set of someone seeing something new as a, hey, uh, I guess a little bit what she might have seen in you at some point, right? That there is something there that maybe you don't know yet, that there is a possibility. Uh, and that I guess elders, you know, people that do these works that are really good at, you know, pointing and seeing yeah. who can potentially be a, a student, right? Who can potentially learn, who can potentially unfold there. So here you are. You're on another reservation, and I want to, you know, I don't want to talk too much time on that story. So you get to meet Chi, this incredible yeah. Navarro medicine yeah. man, who's probably one of the last one now. So can you tell me a little bit about Chi, uh, not his whole story, but who he is today, and, and what is a, a Navarro medicine man? Because you just spent 20 years yeah. with him, yeah. and you're still, you know, uh, one of his students, or his main student, I guess. His only one. Uh, I mean, it, it's uh, yeah, it's a comment on you know the, 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 the very desperate situation today that mm. the only apprentice man, never home medicine man that I know of is me, a white man from London. Uh, young Navajos don't want to do it anymore. Um, very often they don't speak the Navajo language. Um, I know a lot of Navajo words. I wouldn't say I could speak the language. I can usually understand what's going on. It's a very difficult language to, to speak. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. the thing was that uh, through this trip to the code talkers, who are still very, very senior men, or were at that time within, within the tribe, very few of them are left alive now, but 20 years ago, there were still the tribe's senior warriors. And if there was ever a parade, it, it was the code talkers who led them out. Uh, and through the code talkers, I got to meet a man called Emerson Jackson, who uh, himself was a, a U.S. Army veteran. And, uh, Emerson was a very senior medicine man. He'd also been president for 12 years of the Native American Church of North America which is the peyote church, and maybe we can talk about that a bit later. Um, yes. Emerson and one or two other quite senior medicine men very quickly took a shine to me, as we, as we say. And um, 
I, I couldn't really understand why. And then one of them, it, it was very like the Tracteurs, actually. Uh, one of them mm. one day said to me, look, you may not know this, but you're one of us, and we can see that in you. And if you can stay here, you know, you will learn. So you will find something to teach you, and you will learn. Well, so, I didn't think I was going to get two offers like that. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, you know, we're talking like 20 years ago now almost. And so when you, and I want to talk about what is a medicine man and what she's work and what the work yeah. you're doing. But when you look back today, thinking, you know, in right now, do you understand why or you still don't really know why? Well, do you know, Angel, I used to tell people when they said, yeah, how did all this happen? I used to say, and I meant it as actually more of a joke than anything else. I used to say, well, I think the spirits must have brought me here. Mm. Now I think there might be more truth in that than I thought at the time. I mean, look, how do you explain this whole tangled story? I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing that happened to them. So I've been hit by lightning, but not once, but several times, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's just an incredibly unlikely series of events. And what made it even worse was being a journalist. You know, I thought, well, I can write a book about this. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I thought, actually, I was thinking, I was aiming to write a work of fiction. So I thought, well, look, I'll learn a little bit about this. I'll stay for a few months, learn a little about it. And then, You know, I'll write a, a world bestseller. Well, after about, <laughs> didn't take very long to realize that what I was witnessing that was actually fact was a downside interest, more interesting than anything I could ever have made up. I mean, the reality of things that were going on around me was so strange, so bizarre, so completely different than anything I'd ever known. Uh, but I eventually thought, well, look, why don't I just record this? Why don't you know this happening right in front of me? Just write it down, and that's what I did. Yeah. So basically, you no, know, it's true. We have a lot of accounts uh, of medicine people in general by journalists or anthropologists or, you know, Western people that sometimes come and still able to be with them. There is very few accounts of people that have been trained by those medicine people for such a long period of time. And especially, you know, in that specific uh, tradition with, uh, with the Navarro people. I just want to come back just for a second, really not long, but you say Navarro people, young people, they're not really interested to get into that craft. To, to become potentially medicine man. And I'm sure there is some other Navarro medicine man. I don't think there's none, but that is your experience. And that is the experience of Chi, who is, you know, 80 years old now. So what, what is this reaction and why Chi has had problems or difficulty to find people that were from his tribe, from his uh, native language that would really would like to embark in that type of life? What do you think well, it is? There are, there are young men who would do this. And I, I must differentiate here for your listeners. There's a complete difference between men, medicine men and medicine women. Right? 
a medicine man, a man like me, is only allowed to learn about men's medicine. That's where we get medicine men. There are medicine women, but I'm not allowed to know about that as a man. All right, so that, that's the first thing. But there are young men who would be interested, but the problem is there's no money for them. Right? There's no money. If you're a young, if you're a young man, uh, now how man, I don't know, sixty years ago or something, you could probably apprentice yourself to uh, a medicine man, spend five, six, seven years learning with him, and get by on what you got to eat. Right? You didn't have any debts. You didn't have any bank accounts. You didn't have any car loans. You know, you you probably lived with your there's still a lot of multi-generation occupancy on the on the reservation, and, and there was more then. So you'd just go home and your mother would feed you. You, know, you didn't need any money. Today, the modern mm. world has really, really impacted into the, into the reservation. Uh, if you're a young Navajo man, you need a job. You can't process yourself to a, a medicine man and not get paid for seven years. You know? If you want a girlfriend... Mm. You, know, you need some money. You know, if you want to get married, you need some money. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that's really what what's killing it. Um, you know, there, there are young people, and I know one or two of them, who probably would 50, 60 years ago, have become medicine men. Now they can't. I mean, they're, they're working fixing cars and things like that. Um mm-hmm. Which is a great pity. And the other thing is, I mean, even in the 20 years that I've been there, there's been a huge deterioration in the language and and the culture. Uh, I mean, when I first arrived, I think the statistic was 75 to 78% of Navajo people spoke their own language. Today, it's less than 25%. That's in only 20 years, Mm. right? The culture's falling away. I mean, people, even young people, have got a little idea of it, but it's fading fast. Um, mm. It's a tragedy, actually. It's a disaster that's been unfolding before my eyes. We don't actually know how many medicine men are left, but the best estimate that I, this is not my estimate, by the way, the best estimate of people know, know about, probably better than me. Is there maybe four real medicine men left? And that's on a reservation the size of Ireland. You know, so in a country, it's like in a country the size of Ireland, you've got four doctors left. Yeah, that's um that's really sad, you know. And I, you know, I I crossed with another reservation last year, uh, after stopping in in Pine Ridge and in South Dakota, uh Lakota Reservation, and you know. One of the things that strikes me every time I go uh, is the the poverty, right? The lack of access to good food, uh, the problem with clean water, or even access to water. I'm not even talking about clean, just access to water, right? Or electricity and basic human needs. And, you know, with all the consequence of colonialism and the genocide that happened, there is also a lot of trauma. And so there's also, you know, drugs and alcohols and all the problem of unresolved trauma. And that's really so sad when I'm hearing you saying, well, there's just really just four doctors left, right? 
And I guess there is probably more people uh, holding TP in general or holding sweat lodge and things like that. But would you not consider that like the medicine man that you talk about right now? And we're going to go into detail into that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, sweat lodge is just part of the culture. Most older men, you know, can take part in a sweat lodge, um, you know, and, and know how to run one. Um, Things like that. And, and also another thing I think people should know is that Navajo medicine is a vast subject. Uh, there are ceremonies that go on for two, three, four, even five days. These are healing ceremonies and they are run very strictly. They have to be done absolutely correctly. Everything, every prayer, every song, every part of the ceremony has to be done properly in its proper sequence. And there is still actually a reasonable number of people who can still do this. Now, this is medicine completely different to the kind of thing she and I did. Right? They're more like hospital specialists. We're more like the family doctor. Right? We'll, we'll, we'll come on, fix you up. Right, but if you really, really need fixing, then you'd better go and have one of these big ceremonies, you know. So that's completely mm -hmm. that's still reasonably strong, but most of the medicine men again are getting very old. Um, I mean, it's only well, a few years ago, um, she's wife, who's now sadly departed, um, was desperate to get a special ceremony done for her son. And even somebody, a Navajo-speaking Navajo, connected into the medicine men's world. It took her something like nine months to find somebody who could still do this ceremony. Uh, and we ended up right in the back of it. I mean, even by the standards of the Navajo Reservation, and I know it well, this place was really the back of beyond. I mean, we ended up going up this canyon. And there was a stole stone hogan at the end of it. And it was a hogan to be an old mm -hmm. traditional house. Yeah, so, that's such a... Yeah. I'm just trying to feel feel into what you just said. And it, it's really just to feel the, the depth of the, yeah, the loss, oh, basically, that right. has happened. And there's this really old guy there. He was about... I don't know how old he was. He was well, well into his 80s. And his equipment was just ancient. And he was apparently the last man who could do that ceremony. And if he's still with us today, I'd be extremely surprised. So, I mean, that's how fast yes. it isn't passed on. This is oral. This is oral learning, oral teaching. You can't write it down. Yes. There's no way you can write it. I mean, I've written, what I've written down is, is, is kind of like a, I don't know, a big picture. It's not all the fine details. It has to be taught orally. Yes, and, I, and I, I mean, I've even witnessed it. I can understand there is a very little word for that, but we'll talk about that later. I want to talk a little bit more about Chi and his work as a medicine man and your work, you know, with him. So can you tell us a, a little bit about, I guess, not specifics because it may be hard to describe, but what, what makes this type of medicine unique? And maybe, you know, how old is this, you know, and why nobody else can do that or very few people can do that. What it requires really to get to this level of craft that I've witnessed that is, um, 
yeah, mind blowing. I've never seen anything like that. So I was really, you know, and I've seen a lot of ceremonies, a lot of medicine people in love tradition. I've never seen something that detailed, that crafted, that profound, and that powerful. Yeah, it's very powerful indeed. Um, well, Chi, um, uh, his his mother and his grandmother and his father were all medicine people. Uh, and she, uh, I hope I can do this timeline for you verbally, but um, she is probably the last of the lines of people who was taught, who was taught by people like his father, his grandfather, his grandmother, who learned their medicine really before the white world began to impact on the Navajos. So, I mean, it's only about a three or four generation stream. Uh, and, you know, so his medicine is very pure, coming right from the roots. I, I've seen uh, people attempting to do this kind of thing. And I don't know where they learned it, but, you know, it's been pretty rubbish, to be quite frank. But cheese is particularly powerful because it comes pure from the original Navajo root. And, I mean, I, I'm committed on this. I've, I've written this in books. I've written it in articles. I've, you know, uh, I personally think this can is traceable back to the last ice age. I think it goes back that far. And, in fact, in one of the lectures mm -hmm. I gave last with you, I... I uh, flesh that out on, on why I think this. But I think we have a pure stream here, uh, which has come right from you know, the, really the very earliest times of our present humanity. And it's still with us. I mean, it will, there will have been you know, some changes along the way, but I think the main drive is still with us. And I mean, if you like, do you want me to describe how this works and, and what we Yes, I'd love to, you know, I've witnessed, you know, healing on almost 15 different people with different ailments, curses, cancer, you know, depression, autism, many different things. But can you tell us a little bit kind of the, the bigger umbrella of that work and then maybe getting into some specific yeah. about yeah. what the work is really about? Well, most of what we deal with, uh, troubles that people have, illnesses that people have, are traceable back to witchcraft. There is a lot of witchcraft on, on the reservation, and it's almost an everyday part of life. Um, what we do, people will, you know, they, a lot of things will be going wrong for them. You know, like they'll get ill with something, you know. They'll, they'll have a car crash for no particular reason. One of the horses will break a fetlock, you know, all this kind of thing. And it, it starts to pile up until one day they think, well, look, I think I may have been witched. This is the word they use for it, witched. And they'll call in the medicine man. Uh, so, I mean, very few of the people we go to see we've ever heard of before. Um, so we go down there, and she will then do a divination set. And what we do is... Um, a special fireplace is erected in the center of the home. Uh, a fire is started outside. And what we need from the fire is the charcoal. So hot charcoal is then brought in. That's usually by me. 
Um, it's so hot that um, quite often uh, it burns the hairs off my arms, even though I'm holding it on a long hair handle shovel. Uh, it's it's genuinely really mm. hot, and I make that point because I think you saw that um, when Chi picked up that charcoal and put it in his mouth. Uh, that's mm. demonstrating the medicine man's traditional uh, mastery over fire. Uh, and also uh, bringing clean breath, which blows the illness away. But before we do that, he looks into the fire. Uh, I formed this, as his assistant, I formed this five-pointed uh, star. Uh, a crystal is placed at the head of the star, and various instruments are laid out, including eagle feathers and fans, and so on. And uh, the medicine man will then look into the fire and divine, A, what's wrong with the patient? Is it really witchcraft? Sometimes she says, no, you're not, you've not been witched at all. You, this is just a run of bad luck. But usually people have been witched and a curse has been uh, laid out. Uh, a curse has been placed on these people. Now, a Navajo curse is <clears throat> actually a physical object. It's not like our curses, you know, our bell book and candle and the, put the fluence on people. Um, this is kind of what they look like. Uh, this is actually one that I made. Uh, so this is this is yes for not for, uh, for the people that are listening on the podcast. I want to mention that Charles is showing us what a curse would look like. That's a reproduction, basically, because the curse are destroyed when they are extracted or found. Uh, so if you are listening on the podcast, I invite you to see on the video so you can see a little bit what that looked like. Yeah, and I'll take this apart uh, later, uh, Andrew, if you'd like, and show you what's inside it, which is always quite interesting. And these are, sometimes we find them hidden in the house, and they're hidden in, you know, places you probably wouldn't even think of looking, such as, you know, if something's mm -hmm. got um, central heating, it might have been hidden behind. Uh, very few Navajo houses have central heating, by the way, but I'm going to say if they did, it may have been hidden behind the vent there. The vent's been unscrewed and placed inside. Uh, sometimes they're hidden in things like waste pipes, but usually they're buried outside, um, usually under a window because that's seen as the, as the weak point um, where evil can, en can enter. And you know, remarkably, it's usually under the bedroom window the person who's having all the troubles, the illnesses, the sicknesses, you know, the, the car crashes, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, our job then is to take this out, uh, take it apart, show the people what's in there, So there's no question of going around and saying, oh, we found a curse, but we've dealt with it, and you're okay now. We actually show them. Uh, and uh, these things are sort of buried. They, very typically, they've been there for years by the time we, we get to them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're buried a long way off. That's less usual. But um, Uh, perhaps I can tell this story. Uh, I was with Chi one day and we were looking for a curse and he knew, he couldn't quite figure out where it was, but he knew it wasn't at the house. 
uh, we piled into a truck and drove uh, off into the country. And, you know, you can drive across country and come off places in Navajo Reservation. There are no roads, you know, but you can drive across the desert. We came to the top of a hill and she said, first stop and truck, looked around. And I said, is there a graveyard around here somewhere? And the two men from the house who'd come with us said, yes, it's over that hill. You couldn't see it. So we went to this graveyard, and Navajo graveyards are not like Western graveyards. They very rarely have headstones. Some do. If they're veterans, sometimes they have a headstone. Usually they don't. Typically they don't. But it's just a pile of earth. You know, like you see in Wild West movies where someone's been buried, and it's just a pile of earth. That's, that's what you see. And we're going up and down these graves, and suddenly she just dived on this grave, dug into it, and pulled out a curse. And the men who were with us were just aghast. They said, but that's our mother's grave. And, of course, it had been buried in her grave to, to make the curse more powerful. And the, mm. um, the reason we'd been called in in the first place was because the grandmother was very ill. Uh, the curse seemed to be aimed at the women of the family. The mother had died. The grandmother was now very ill. Uh, and she'd been to three hospitals, including the big hospital in Albuquerque, which is 200 more or more miles away. And every time they said, look, take her home, make her comfortable, there's nothing we can do. She hadn't eaten for three weeks. By the time we got back to the house, she was sitting there eating it with a spoon, eating a can of Campbell's soup. And her other daughter said, well, I don't know what's going on. My mother just suddenly said she was hungry. And that mm. was probably about the moment we pulled that curse out. So that's how powerful it can be. I've witnessed this, you know. I mean, a lot of people I know. Yeah, I'm sure you've you've seen many uh, many of them. And thank you for giving such a powerful example. Uh, you know, I've witnessed curses and things happening in the Amazon between medicine men kind of trying to steal power from each other to even, you know, arm or, you know, make them heal and potentially kill them. Um, so that's a big part of what's happening potentially on the reservation there. Uh, and I'd, lo I'd love to let you show us what is in the curse, but what is the explanation of chi on that? You would think that people... Is it because they are jealous? Is it because they envy? Is it just because it's traditionally it's been here for a very long time and people still keep doing it? Uh, it always surprised me, you know, when I hear about those stories, right? But uh, what is the uh, outlook on that? It's just like, well, this is our life is right here. I, I think that that is to some extent it. You know, this is the way that we live our lives. Um, the... Uh, the, as I said, witchcraft is a, still a very powerful um, factor on, on, on the reservation. I mean, look, you know, we live in a world, most, most people who are going to be watching this, you know, live in a world where the very idea of witchcraft is just simply laughed at. I mean, to, to be modern, you know, you can't possibly believe in witchcraft. I mean, ridiculous. Um, but actually, we're only a couple of generations away, actually, from a time when people did almost universally, well, more than a few generations, but a couple of hundred years from a time when people almost universally believed in witchcraft. 
mm-hmm. yeah, from top to bottom. I, I often say, cite the, the case of uh, Shakespeare's play Macbeth, which he actually wrote for James the, King James I, who was so fascinated by witchcraft, he wrote books about it. You know, you remember that was the witches, the, uh, the weird sisters in Macbeth, and it opens with these prophecies and so on. When that play was first performed before King James, and uh, I think his cousin was the King of Denmark in London, and I think it was about 1610, I can pretty well guarantee you that everybody in that audience, including all the cast and the king and the queen and all the lords, all believed in witchcraft. You know, I mean, yeah. it, they, they all did. We are weird in human history by not believing it at all or trying not to, but I see demonstrations of it all the time. Yeah, and you, you give us a, a powerful example, and I'm sure you have plenty of them. So I want to kind of finish and close that subject. Can you show us what's inside yes. usually or what does it look like again? Yes, certainly I can. Maybe you can describe it as you open it so people listening on the podcast can have an idea. Uh, Usually when we get these, they're black with age. Uh, This is rawhide, and it's been wrapped up with rawhide. This is the the string around it, okay? And this is typically how they appear. Uh, So let me just quickly unwrap this. I'll just hold this up so you can see. And uh, if I take the covering off, should I tip this forward a bit, Angel, so people can see a bit better? Is that, is that, no, it doesn't, is it? That's okay, we can see. Yeah. If I open this up now, you'll see inside there's a stick. Yeah. There's also this, which is an arrowhead. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's animal fur. Now, typically, this will be bear fur or deer fur. The reason for that is bears are taboo to animals. If you meet one or even cross a bear track, you're supposed to go and get protection ceremony done. So when I inquire about this, and it's always been a bit unsatisfactory, actually, um, the medicine man will say, well, if you go near a bear, you'll get very ill. You have to stay away from it. Uh, I think there may be something lacking in translation here, but bears can also contain the evil spirits of people. So that would be put in the curse, bear fur or deer hair. The deer hair is to send you crazy. You know how a startled deer goes charging through the undergrowth? That's to make mm-hmm. you crazy like that. Okay, so inside here we've got this stick, which has also been wrapped up with uh, with hide, with raw hide. Let me just take this off as uh, quickly as I can here. And um, it looks like a stick. But when you look at it carefully, it comes in half. Oh, and inside, I don't know if you can see that, right? Uh, yes. On the, uh, I'm not sure how you're going to look at it, on the left hand, oh, I've got it upside down, actually. Yeah, we can see it. Right, on this side here, 
uh, you've got a man and a lightning strike. The idea mm-hmm. is that the lightning would go, if there's lightning, it would be diverted into it and cause him pain. Uh, here we have what's supposed to be a rattlesnake. Uh, you can possibly see the forked tongue. Yes. And, and a house. And a hog on the other house, yeah. On the other side of the stick, I don't know if you can have clues, that's not too bad, is it? We have a similar yes. thing. We have a rattlesnake. We have a lightning strike, but the figure here is a female figure. And there's also a dollar sign. The idea is, if you're a man and a wife, okay, or, you know, two lovers, this will split you apart. Mm. Okay, I've got the wrong way around. This will split you apart. And the house there and the money, right? It's to drain all the money out of your house. It's to start you fighting over money, to start you fighting over the house. Yeah? Now, the arrowhead that I was holding up, it's a stone arrowhead. It's typical of the kind of things we find. This was not found in a curse, by the way. So you, you know, this is one that's been produced somewhere on the reservation. Um, what they what they curse with, this is typical, is something broken, a stick, and something sharp. Something mm-hmm. broken, something sharp, is the the uh, is the basic concept of a Navajo curse. Um, and these turn up all over the place. I mean, God knows how many hundreds of them. Uh, we, we dug up. And, you know, when I first started, I thought, oh, well, Chi must be, you know, jumping on his bicycle or something and bicycling around the reservation at night and burying curses just so, uh, you know, he can dig them up. Uh, well, I soon cured of that when he started telling me to dig them up because he had a bad back. So I started digging them up for him. <laughs> so... So I knew that was genuine. I also knew that as we were traveling sometimes 200 miles or more to get some, some to people we'd never heard of and never met, um, that, you know, look, the answer is there's plenty of real witches going around planting curses. Um, medicine men don't need to plant phony ones themselves. Um, yeah, so thank, thank you for, for showing that. It's really powerful and, you know, uh, I want to make sure our listeners are not just hearing about curses today, but also about, you know, other things, because I've seen also she uh, doing extraction yes. from people. Yeah. And I, I want to preserve the confidentiality of the people involved, but people have cancer or autism or other things. And there is this technique that she's using, using this little piece of wood and sucking out from people uh, those ailments. And I've seen it with my eyes, right? Taking out things that are impossible to find, I guess, in the normal body or in a pipe. And can you just talk like very quickly for a few minutes yeah. just about that technique? Because that's another powerful one. Well, the idea is that the witch man, um, basically Navajos will tell you the witch man can do anything. 
And one of the things they do is they uh, implant things in you. Um, all sorts of, you know, make you very ill. Um, and the, the medicine man then removes that. She will remove this. He'll do a divination ceremony. You'll figure out what's wrong with you. Um, sometimes there isn't a curse, uh, the, the physical curse I've just shown you. Sometimes you have, we would say in English, you have been cursed, right? Uh, but this is physical stuff that's been injected into you by the medicine, by the witch man without you knowing. And the medicine man then has to remove it. And she does this with a pipe. It, it, it's actually a reed in Navajo. It, it, they, they call it, in, in the English translation, they call it bamboo, but it, it's not really. It's a kind of local reed that grows out there. And they, they extract it with this. And these are physical things. Well, you, you saw them when he, he pulled them out of some people when we came over there. Uh, it's illness, um, you know, things like um, a lady had some kind of blockage, intestinal blockage, uh, and she pulled that out for her. Um, you know, people who have got really bad joint pains and things, sometimes something's been injected in there by the witch man, and he will find it and pull it out. Um, I remember very closely with a man who, who had... He was losing the sight of this eye. She came right in here with his tube and he pulled this stuff out of the guy's eye. And almost immediately the man said, you know, it's improving. I, I, I could, I'm starting to see again. I had seen people walk, well, not walk into cheese, actually being carried in because, you know, it's so, their feet are so painful they can't walk. She's worked on them, and they've actually walked out of there. I mean, almost danced out of the place. Um, and, you know, in, in our world, you know, I think I said to you, and I think I should be honest to, to people who are watching or listening, I always try to keep one foot in the scientific community, you know, the scientific world. I want to see evidence. Well, when somebody has to be carried in and then virtually dances out again. I, you know, unfortunately, I'm not a doctor and, and you know, I have no way of, of explaining this in medical terms. But, you know, you don't have to do be a doctor, a doctor to know when somebody's made an extraordinary recovery. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Angel Deer. While you're listening, browse the website at www.thesanctuaryheal.com. And I've witnessed that when, when you were here. I want to, to mention that to, to people here. Um, you know, there was, you know, a child that came that's around five years old that had autism that hasn't spoken, you know, yet. Uh, and she uh, worked on him and uh, told him, told the mother that was here with a dear friend, say, hey, your child is going to speak in a few days, start speaking. He has never spoken in so many years. And as of today, which is kind of two weeks now after this uh, retreat, uh, the child is not only speaking words, which he has never done before, but he's even singing. Uh, 
So I, I've witnessed it, you know, obviously I, I believe in it. <laughs> I'm quite immersed in that work, but uh, it's true that probably you are listening today on the podcast or you're watching this video. Uh, you know, we're not going to go into explanation, but just saying that I've seen enough of it that, yeah, if I had to hear about it 20 years ago before I got into that work, I would have probably think this is just coincidence. This is just what we call miraculous healing. This is just what, you know, some kind of witchcraft which doesn't exist. There is a scientific explanation, which there might be, by the way. But what I've seen goes way, way beyond all of that. And for me, it's like there is not even a possibility to explain that uh, working on someone with a little piece of bamboo and extracting piece of black glass, like literally black glass from someone's body without opening the body. So I don't want to yeah, give too much details about that, but just yeah, uh, to keep our mind open, I think it's very important when we are witnessing ancestral healing and to be curious. And, you know, at the end of the day, those people are working out healed. And that's really, I think, what matters and what's really important. And people that, like you said, I've been to big hospitals sometime. I've been told, well, you're going to die very quickly and very soon and then just start recovering. So that, that's, I think, what's the best testimony we can get from that type of healing, right? Well, uh, Angel, I, I didn't, you know, because we left when we did, I didn't actually know that the little boy had recovered that, that much. I, I'm not surprised. Quite honestly, I've never happened before, um, but I'm very pleased. And I'll certainly tell Chi about it. Um, one thing I, I would say about these extractions is uh, I have done this myself, um, and uh, I mean, for with the divination ceremony, reading things in the fire, um, I'm extremely good at that. I mean, I see well for. For an Indian, let alone for a white man, I've also uh, done these extractions, and the idea behind it, the philosophy, if that's the right word, is that the spirits are doing this, not the man. Hmm. And I hmm. always remember the first time I did it, I had this patient, um, this young Navajo man. I'll never forget his name. He's called Brett. And he had a sore leg, and he hadn't been able to walk properly for a year. And he came into the sweat, and she suddenly just turned to me and said, you do it. <laughs> the first time I'd ever done this. And I remember being horrified. What on earth am I going to do? You know, I've seen it, I've never done it. And it was interesting, all the Navajos, they'd never seen a white man do this before. They have even heard of a white man trying to do it. Didn't face them at all, because their view was, well, if the spirits are prepared to help him, he can do it. And if they're not prepared to help him, he can't. Simple as that. You know, I'm having stage fright and palpitations and stuff, but they didn't care. This, you know, it's not, well, you know, he can do it or he can't. You know, if, if the spirits are going to help this white man, great, you know. So I did it. And yeah, I pulled this big thorn out of his, out of his uh, leg. Uh, and I can absolutely assure your viewers and listeners um, there was no trick in Paul. I mean, I sucked away. Yeah. I didn't actually believe it, I could do it. And, and then there it was. And the guy's leg was cured almost instantaneously. But 
the weird thing was I felt completely in pieces. I felt totally shattered. I just had to get out of the place, you know, and I, as I drove off, Brett is dancing around the sweat lodge, you know, showing everybody. <laughs> and I'm fearing in pieces. And I talked to Chi about it afterwards. And she said, well, what do you expect? You know, the spirits come into you. Of course you're going to feel strange. You know, you're going to have to get used to it. You know, I mean, what do you feel? I mean, what do you expect? Which is strangely, you know, after I've been there a few years by then, nobody ever explained that to me, you know, and it is true. Mm. You know, it's not the man doing. She, Ramon, is not pulling stuff out of people. Charles Langwick does not pull things out of people or divine things in, in fires. Something comes into you and it works through you. I think that's the, mm. the best the best explanation I, I can give. And, and the, the, the matter that we actually pull out of people, it's there, but it, it doesn't manifest itself. It doesn't become physical so we as humans can see it until the spirits have allowed you to take it out. Then we can see it. And as you, as you know yourself, this is real physical stuff. I mean, it's not us saying, oh, we pulled something out of you. There you are. Uh, very good. Off you go. We actually show you all. Yeah, I mean, in... Uh in the case of that little boy, you know, he extracted something from the throat, but walking through the, the skin of the neck, right? And and the extraction was, you know, the thing was at least a couple of inches. It was pretty big, what was removed. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, uh, the mother messaged me three days later, sending me a video of him singing. Yeah, and I was not... It's not like I was surprised because I know, you know, and I've witnessed she at work, but it was just a beautiful testimony to see that little boy that was not able to speak and just recover or discover speech, right? Having speech coming for the first time. So um, I want to kind of close on that because I want to talk, I want to take some time to talk a little bit about this recording that you've done with your book. Um, so she's now 80 plus years old, right? Um, yes, I mean, it's, it's birthday, yeah. yeah. I'm going to say that too. You're not, you're not very young, uh, Charles. You're, you're younger than 80. You're not 80, but you're, you're not a young you're not, lad, right? You're not in your 20s. Not anymore. No. So, um, Obviously, those learning and those ways, you know, takes many years of immersion, a lifetime potentially of immersion in those culture and those tradition um, to learn. Because, like you say, we can't really explain how to do it. We really have to be immersed in it and communicate. You know, I witnessed she because he was staying in my home, spending many, many hours every night just talking to the stars, being out, looking at the stars and being in prayers and communion. And that's his ritual, that's his ways. And I want to ask you a little bit just to close on that subject. So this is going to potentially disappear, but given it is given by spirit, right? Potentially that is always there. Is there any time where you talk to she, where she believes that potentially that medicine might die and come back? because it can be relearned a certain way or does he feel like really people need to learn now because we lose the human aspect of it that might disappear completely potentially i i wish i could uh to i wish i could answer that in the affirmative um 
I think she and I both know that uh, that's not going to happen. Um, I would I would say within ten years, this is probably going to be dead. Uh, she's one mm. of the last practitioners. Um, I mean, what I've managed to do is uh, over the years, over a very long period of time, 20 years, I wrote down at length. I mean, this is the kind of thing a journalist does, right? I mean, it, it's it, it's natural to me. to rec- That's when your first skill, your first job is coming handy now again. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I wrote, no, I didn't write down everything we did, but I mean, the things that were worth recording, I recorded in detail. I mean, I would typically come back from, uh, you know, a, a de-witching or something like that, and I'd write three, four, five thousand words about it um, to get down that detail um, before, it, you know, before it went, and I'd do it straight away. Over the years, I mean, it's added up to a work of about 500,000, half a million words, which... It's nearly as long as War and Peace for any viewers or listeners who've ever had to wade their way through Tolstoy. I mean, it's marvellous stuff, but it's rather long. Uh, (laughs) And do you know, (coughs) excuse me, Mum, do you know I can't get a publisher? Nobody's yeah, so, so if there's a probably like a thousand page writer, it's going to be a big volume. I, what was your intention when you started recording? What is mainly for your personal um, uh, education yeah. because you were learning that? Or what, did you always have the goal like, oh, one day she's going to be gone, I might be gone, and someone needs to know about this? I think it was a mixture of them all, actually. I think when I started doing it, I just wanted to write it down because it was so remarkable. I thought, you know, look, if I don't write, if I don't write this down, nobody else is going to. Um, and then I think eventually I got around to thinking, well, look, I need to record as much as I, of this as I can while I'm still able to do so, you know, while there's still somebody who can do it. And then eventually, as you made the point, you know, I'm not getting any younger either. Um, and I realized, well, you know, if I, uh, you know, the, what in England we say, you know, um, slip on a, slip on a banana skin or, uh, fall under a bus or something like that, you know, uh, then, you know, all this will have been for nothing. So I tried to get a publisher, um, Nobody was interested. Do you have a title for the book already? It's just called the Navajo Diaries. I mean, I mean it, it's it's in diary form. You know, it's name, place, time, date, and then what happened. So, um, so I'm quite uh, I, I'm quite fascinated. You told me that when you were here. Hey, I can't find a publisher. Like people are not really interested about that kind of thing. To me, it's mesmerizing, right? Because you would think that some of those there's a lot of spiritual publisher or publisher that publish works that is a little bit out there, right? A little bit different from mainstream. What is what? What is you know? Just quickly on that. But what is the reason people are not really interested in that kind of work? Do you know, Angel? I haven't the slightest idea. Like, like you, I would have thought they would be interested. But I mean, I've contacted altogether. I would say about 150 agents and publishers, and not one of them. Not not only in this country, but in in Britain as well. And not one of them. 
mm-hmm. showed any interest of any kind. Um, I mean, the two mm-hmm. books that I have out on on Amazon are kind of cuts. I, I you know I cut interesting bits out and stitch them all together. And I'm very honest about that in the books. I mean, I tell people right from the start that that's what we've done, what I've done. Um, so anyway, look, eventually I thought, well, look, you know, if I fall under the bus, um, the, uh, all this is going to be for nothing. So I'm having it privately printed in, in London. Um, and uh, I'm, we're going to print up mm-hmm. maybe, I mean, it's a two volume work. So we're going to print up maybe a hundred volumes altogether. So, yeah, you know, so we'll, 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 we'll go to the links for, for people about your other book, right? We put those links there so people can, you know, find your okay, other books yeah. and all of that. And I also want to, you know, just put it out there. Is there anyone that's listening to this podcast today or in a month uh, or listening to this YouTube or you know someone in a publishing house and you're interested to uh, learn more about that, to contact me or to contact Charles? And, you know, because I think... Uh, well, obviously, this is not going to be lost, lost because you're printing it, you know, personally. But I think there will be a, a beautiful uh, impact to have this wisdom share more broadly and to really, uh, yeah, reach more people. So that that's what I believe. So, Charles, um, I want to give you the last four or five minutes. I don't know if there is anything we haven't talked about. I, I, I'm really fascinated by it. I just want to say that. This is such a huge subject. We could do many, many chapters of that discussion, and I might invite you again to talk about uh, a slightly variation of that subject uh, in a few months. But um, yeah, what, what you know, we are here in twenty twenty, right? Twenty. We are going into twenty thirty. You know, ten years from now, probably she's gone, right? Twenty thirty years from now, anybody that's known she probably will be gone. So. What can we do? Is that people listening? What is really, is there anything that can be done to really support? You know, obviously, there's a lot of work done around uh, taking land back, territories back. There's a lot of work done around language. I know, you know, there's schools and some teaching done around the language, but around the medicine work here, is there anything that she or you sees as, you know what, that would really help? Or do you feel like really this is just, you know, the end of a cycle and it's going to be really hard to preserve that type of medicine? Well, and once again, there's many other ceremonies, many other type of medicine. You know, you talk quickly about peyote and that, and this is still going. But that kind of work, what can we do or how can we support or, yeah, what is to be done? So if we want to preserve some part of it at least well i mean i think it is the end of the cycle um i you know Mm. if you look everywhere else around the world uh it's it's over i mean even into the 1920s in britain and in the united states there was still what they used to call cunning folk who were kind of folk healers that's all gone now um uh, the only people who are left of you know the old folk healer type are the ones we now call horse whisperers. Um, they're still clinging on, um, but I mean, if you look around the world, all this stuff is dying everywhere. You know, in in Asia, in uh, Australia, in 
Europe, everywhere you look, it, it's dying. And I think, and I'm very sad to say this, I think we've reached the end of the cycle among the Navajo. Uh, after Chi and one or two others, there's just a big black hole. There's, there's nobody coming up. I have done everything I can to record and, and memorialize as much as I can of the kind of thing that happened. Um, you know, what we did, what we were able to achieve, uh, etc. Um, unfortunately, you could read every word of the half million words that I've recorded in two volumes and still not be able to conduct another sermon because there's so many bits yes. and pieces yeah. that you can only learn by observation. And, mm. you know, you can't actually write it down. It's not like a formula. I mean, it's not like, you know, if you're putting together, you know, a, you're a pharmacist and you're putting things together, you add a bit of yeah, that. It's not like do this and do that and this will happen, right? It's, yeah. it's a little Press bit more complex. And everything will be fine. It, it just isn't like that. And without a teacher, you can't really learn it. And I think, you know, it's a weird thing to say. But the way things are going, I this white man from North London could end up as possibly one of the last Navajo medicine. I mean, I would hope that doesn't happen. I mean, I really do hope that one, that doesn't happen because you really need to be a Navajo to, to fully understand this. And I mean, some, you know, quite, quite prominent Navajos have paid me the huge compliment, you know, saying look, Charles Langley is the only white man we've ever met. Who, who actually understands our ways. And that's a massive compliment. I, mean, you know, I couldn't tell you how pleased I was when they started saying that about me. And I can do this stuff, but, you know, I'm no spring chicken either, and I'm not going to pass it on to. So I think what we're going to end up with is that my books are going to be the, the last memorial. I mean, there'll be copies in the British Library, there'll be copies in the Library of Congress, uh, the Bodleian Library in, uh, I can't remember, Oxford or Cambridge now, I think it's Oxford. You know, these great world libraries will have copies. And so hopefully it will live on in that form. But as for actual mm. practitioners, I don't think so. I think it's the end of, it's the, end of the line. I'm very sad to say. Yeah. And I, and I thank you, uh, Charles, for being very honest. You know, uh, Americans love, you know, happy ending movies or happy ending stories. But I think sometimes, you know, it can uh, make us live in total illusion of reality uh, because not always uh, stories end that way. And I think, um, yeah, hopefully, you know, it will interest people in those traditional ways. But more importantly, I think try to preserve what else is to be preserved, right? Lands, culture, language, and supporting, you know, uh, we'll put that in the details below, but we'll put some um, nonprofit and organization that are already doing amazing work on the ground uh, with the, law, the people on the reservation that help them, you know, with food, with water, with shelter, with, you know, many necessary things. Um, I wanted to give you a big thank you, Charles. Um, you know, I've been uh, so pleased to meet you and to get to know you a little bit better. 
thank you for sharing with all your heart and you know being willing to to do that and to bring that out there we will stay in touch uh if anyone here uh that's listening or watching you know if you have any question and things like that don't hesitate to reach out uh obviously if we get 100 emails i might not pass everything to charles but is there a few things that i tell hey uh charles and he need to hear about well we'll transmit that i also wanted to mention that she's not on the call because he doesn't speak very good english i speak very little english obviously he speaks navarro uh and that's the reason why uh you know it's happening that way and like charles explained you know navarro language is very complex uh hence the code people uh talkers during world war ii were used with that language and it's also i think uh for me uh a tribute and an honor to that culture and uh this is one view one version uh one opinion or two opinions here you know though you might find other opinions on the medicine on the evolution of that but i can only tell you that you know charles is uh yeah the closest students of chi and that extraordinary man and he spent you know more than 20 years with him now and so you got quite a accurate accounts as close as we can right uh to what's happening and what's being done charles any any words that you you want to close with uh yes i mean i think um first of all angel thank you for for having me on i'm, I'm glad we could come around and actually demonstrate to people who have an understanding you know, at your at your mm. centre, what we can actually do. I'm, I'm very glad we were able to show them. And, you know, this is this is basically the first time she's ever been off the reservation. It's certainly the first time he's ever demonstrated these powers to an outside non-Indian audience. Um, and so I was very pleased we could we could achieve that. You know, so there are people who know that this is real, you know, not just. Mm. Uh, hearing about it second hand, they actually witnessed it. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think uh, at the moment um, we're still hanging on there. You know, for another few years, we'll probably be still hanging on there. But one thing she actually did once say to me, and I was, I was talk, talking about Navajo medicine, and he, 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 bent down, he just scooped up a fistful of sand from the desert, right, and he held it out, and he just let it all drain away until there were just, you know, a few grains stuck to his fingers. And he said, what I, what we just, what you just saw me pour away used to be Navajo medicine. And he pointed to the desert, and it, it, it was all as fast as that. And then he held up his hand with a grain on it and said, that's all we have left. I am just enormously privileged to have been able to take part in that, even if it was only the last few brains. It's been an enormous privilege. It's been the most important thing in my life, and a life which actually has not been notably short of dramatic events of one kind or another. But, I mean, that's by far the most, I think, by far the most important thing I've ever done is record what she can do. And other Navajo medicine men, I, I work with other medicine men as well. Uh, 
that I've been re- able to record that is a privilege. And I'm enormously proud that I was able to do it and that it will be there in the future. You know, if people mm. want to get interested, they want to know what a medicine man actually really did, they will be able to find it in my work. And of that, I'm, I'm very, very proud, proud and pleased. Yeah. Thank you so much, Charles. Um, thank you, everyone that was listening. Uh, always a privilege to connect. Uh, we might try to bring back Chi uh, at some point, you know, next year, uh, maybe in the spring. Uh, so you might have, you know, the possibility to meet him in person and, and uh, to experience this beauty that's I can't describe more this crowd and just an immense beauty and power of this work. Uh, but in the meantime, yeah, if you want to reach out, don't hesitate to contact us on our website. You will find below this podcast and below this video some links about Charles and his books, some links that I mentioned about some amazing uh, people that do great work on, on the reservation that you can support if you want to send them some donation. And uh, wishing everyone a wonderful rest of your evening or your day, wherever you're watching from. Please share this podcast with others. Uh, this is a free content, so we really rely on just spreading the good words. If you can do that, that will be amazing. Thank you so much, everyone, and see you again soon. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Sanctuary Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we're a source of talks about spirituality, personal transformation, energy healing, shamanism, and earth-based practices. For more, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. On the website, you can find out about our events, our retreats, healing offering, our spiritual blog, and you can also register for the newsletter. Again, visit thesanctuaryheal.com. Till next time, this is the Sanctuary Podcast and Angel Deer signing off.